2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. This is Alex Golub, a professor of anthropology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and I will be the host of the channel today. I'm very excited. Today we're going to be talking to Emilani Case, who is a lecturer in Pacific Studies at Victoria University of Wellington, and who is the author of Everything Ancient Once Was New, Indigenous Persistence from Hawaii to Kahiki. So, Emelani, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here.
1: So, uh, one of the things we like to do when we start these interviews is just have a little bit of the backstory for the author. Can you tell me a little bit about who you are and how it was that you came to write this book?
0: Sure. Aloha mai kakou, just to anyone who might be listening. Um, My name is Emelani Case, and I'm originally from Waimea um, on the big island of Hawaii. Um, but I currently live in Te Panganui which is Wellington, Aotearoa, um, otherwise known as New Zealand. Um, how I came to write this book, um, it really, it came out of my PhD research. Um, I studied towards a PhD here in New Zealand, in Pacific Studies, and I focused on a Hawaiian concept, um, that concept being Kahiki. And Kahiki is where we, as Kanaka Maoli, as Hawaiians, say we came from or our ancestors came from before migrating to Hawaii. And so for years, I just really became obsessed with this concept. I studied it in different points in history. Um, And when I graduated uh, with my Ph.D., I was given the opportunity to submit my my Ph.D. thesis. We call it a thesis here in New Zealand, but my my Ph.D. dissertation as a manuscript for publication um, to UH Press. And I did. So I I submitted it. um, It was approved. And I was asked to make some revisions. Um, And it was during the revision process that I actually rewrote most of it. Um, So the book came about from my PhD research, but was very much inspired by or the rewrite was inspired by um, different indigenous movements that um, really ignited and, and gained in momentum in 2019.
1: Mm. And, you know, I think of that Pacific studies at Wellington as being a very, very important place for the study of the Pacific. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like to be there? And you worked with uh, Teresia Teawa, is that right? She's a a person who, you know, maybe um, you could tell us a little bit more what she was like. She passed away, unfortunately, at a young age. What was Mm -hmm. it like doing that uh, research there?
0: Oh, it was, it, it was incredible. You know, she was the entire reason I came to Wellington. Um, when I was looking at programs, I knew I wanted to get my PhD in Pacific studies. Um, as you know, we don't have a PhD Pacific studies program in Hawaii. So I knew I needed to leave and I started searching and, and had heard such amazing things about the pr- program here in Wellington and um, had heard that Terracio was its director um, or the program director. And I had read her work and just loved the way she thought. She was such an amazing critical thinker. And um, I just thought, wow, if there's anyone I could work with, I would love the opportunity to work with her. And so I applied to the program and thankfully got accepted and she agreed to be my PhD supervisor. So, you know, moving from Hawaii to Aotearoa just really challenged me in ways that I, I couldn't have anticipated. At home in Hawaii, I'm the indigenous person. Um, or I'm an Indigenous person. Coming here, I maintain my Indigenous identity, but I, but I now live on land that I'm not Indigenous to, And so it really pushed me to kind of rethink my own positionality and constantly challenge my own positionality and think about what it means to be a Pacific person now living in another part of the Pacific. Um, it made me view myself, my people, and and my place and my responsibilities quite differently. So I think moving here was was so generative for me um, in ways that, again, I I couldn't have anticipated while I was still living at home. Um, But I do want to say, you know, this book would not have been possible without Teresia Tewa um, and her guidance and her mentorship. And I consider it one of the biggest blessings of my life that I was able to come here and spend um, some amazing quality time with her. Um, I graduated in 2015, stayed on for an extra year um, to be a teaching fellow. In Pacific Studies, and then she passed um, tragically at the beginning of uh, twenty seventeen or in the early part of twenty seventeen.
1: Yeah, that was a tremendous blow to the community of pretty much everyone who has um, studied the Pacific. Uh, I, I remember hearing the news about when she passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of people remember where they were. You know, it, it it's yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us for since so many people have memories of her. What was she like as a person? What, 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 what? When we think about what we can do to to sort of emulate her as teachers mm-hmm. ourselves or as learners ourselves, what was she like as a person?
0: Oh, she was uh, she was incredible. She was warm. She was kind. She was funny. Um, she was intense. I mm. often tell people I have a, I have memories of sitting in supervision meetings with her where. I would share some of my ideas, and she listened very loudly. And what I mean by that is she would always sigh and kind of hum. And if she really agreed with you, you knew she agreed with you because she would go, mmm, mmm, and it was really loud. Um, And I remember writing this reflection after she passed about how people, after you spend a a great deal of time with Teresia, everyone else seems a bit too quiet. And I loved Mm. it. She listened and kind of engaged with life in a, in that kind of really audible way. Um, But, you know, she, when I landed in New Zealand as a, you know, fresh PhD student, she picked me up from the airport. You know, that's the kind of supervisor she was. She just wasn't there to take care of you academically. She was there to be kind of like the big sister auntie that, that you knew needed um, but that not all supervisors or not all teachers are willing to to become, and she was that for me. She was a teacher, she was a guide, she was a friend. um I loved her dearly, so yeah, when she passed, that was a big blow, like you said i I know exactly where I was yeah. Um, and yeah she, and and on top of all of that, just to get back to who she was as a teacher, gosh, what I sat in so many classrooms um. And I had the honor of watching her capture students. You know, she was also a poet, and I feel like she just had this talent to stand there and deliver lectures or to speak to students in this poetic and really profound and powerful way, um, revealing both the beauties and the pains of our region and, and really drawing people into the Pacific with her. So she was just a remarkable woman.
1: Yes, your book begins with a poem, and I, I read that and I thought this is a this is a Teresia Teawa connection. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it does begin with a poem, um, and yeah, that poem comes out of uh, the movement to protect Mount Kea, which was one of the inspirations for rewriting the book um, in twenty nineteen when I was supposed to be doing revisions and and sort of made the crazy decision to to rewrite it, um, and that poem kind of came before I, I rewrote the book. And so it just seemed to to fit perfectly in in the um, final publication.
1: So tell me about Mauna Kea. For some listeners, they might be familiar with um, the history of the mountain. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe you could just give us a little rundown of it and um, what, what that role, the role that it played when uh, you were trying to do revisions and then also living your life in the midst of that moment, which I think, you know, for people who are here in Hawaii, and I think maybe even more broadly, that was a very powerful moment for people. And I think people felt that they knew that they were at a at an important historical point. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong about that, but I got that feeling.
0: Mm, no, definitely. Um, so I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm from Waimea um, on the big island. And so Mauna Kea is my mountain. Um, I grew up with, with, the Mauna every day, greeting it every day, seeing the Mauna every day. Um, And no matter where I live in the world, Mauna Kea is still my anchor. Um, It's still what I look to, who I look to for grounding, for guidance, for strength. Um, But how Mauna Kea kind of, or or to give some background for people who, who might not be familiar with the Mauna, with the mountain, um, Mauna Kea is one of our most sacred places. Um, it's the highest, you know, the summit of Maunakea is the highest point of, of land um, in Hawaii. It's it's therefore the pico or the summit of it is is quite kapu, it's sacred. Um it's our ancestor as well. The lo- longer name of Maunakea is Mauna Awakia. The child of Wakia Wakia is like our, for lack of a better description, sky father. Um, he's one of our oldest ancestors, um, so we we believe ourselves to be, and we and we live ours we live um, with the knowing that we are genealogically related to this mountain, and so that's the way I treat it. That's the way I love it. That's the way I protect it as an ancestor. Um, and so, in the book, I do talk a bit about one of the current controversies, which is the um, proposal to build a 30-meter telescope on the summit of the mountain. And this isn't something new, even though the movement really gained in a lot of momentum in, in 2019, um, when we saw people um, really ground themselves at the base of the mountain to protect it from from construction, from the construction and uh, of the 30-meter telescope and to protect it from desecration, the movement to protect Mauna Kea has been going on for for decades, really. There are already 13 telescopes on the mountain, and all of them were controversial, and all of them were contested. Um, The 30-meter telescope is just the latest proposal, and even that um, has been long going. Um, So it's been over a decade that we've been fighting against this current current project. Um, But to get back to the book and how Mauna Kea really inspired the rewrite of this book, Um, in 2019, when I was supposed to be working on minor revisions, um, and one of the editors of the book series that I've published under Indigenous Pacifics, one of the book editors is my dear friend and colleague, um, April Henderson. And she and I just the other week at the book launch were kind of reminiscing and laughing about the fact that I was really just supposed to be doing minor revisions. And I very nervously one day in 2019 asked her if I could rewrite Significant portions of it, and thankfully, she she trusted me and, and gave me that gave me that permission. Um, but again, to to get back to Mauna Kea in 2019, um, as some people may be familiar with, uh, the governor of Hawaii, David Ige, gave the green light for construction to begin on the mountain, um, and so people back home gathered at the base of Mauna Kea and established a pu'uhonua, or a place of safety and refuge for other kia'i, or protectors of the mountain, to come and stand against the construction and stand in protection of the mountain. I was here in Aotearoa watching um, what was unfolding at home. I think about four days, three or four days into that stand, I, I couldn't stay here any longer, and so I jumped on a plane and I flew home to be with my people and to be at the mauna, and it was that going home um, that really inspired me to then, you know, a couple or a few weeks later, come back to Aotearoa and 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 really reground the book in our current social movements. Um, so yeah, that that's sort of how. Mauna Kea was already part of the the PhD work that I did. I had written about Mauna Kea a bit, especially in the introduction of my PhD thesis, Um, but going home in 2019, um, I don't know if I want to say it inspired me, but it showed me what what responsibility I had to really ground the work in these social movements and to speak to um, our active protection of, of our places as Indigenous people. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think when when people read books, sometimes they imagine that the author sat down and wrote them from beginning to end and nothing interrupted. And it was, it, you know, well, by the time it gets copy edited and peer reviewed, it makes it look easy. But these processes uh, of writing these books are often very, very complicated. And um, and life intervenes in ways that you can't always anticipate. And right. that intervention, it can be uh like a hook or a handle, an affordance for you to to feed back into the book and to and to develop uh, your thinking and, and your thought a little bit more. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. It's funny because I've done a couple of interviews about the book, and people always ask me about the writing process. What's it like to write a book? And and I say, you know, this is my first book. Hopefully, I'll write you know others. But in, I don't think that this process that I've gone through to write this book was was anything typical, um, and so. Yeah, it, I, it's always sort of a funny question to answer. Like, what's it like to write a book? Because I don't think it's a typical experience and I don't think any experience is the same. And for this particular book, um, I really trusted in being led and and, guide, and guided to write what needed to be written. And so, yeah, 2019 taught me a lot in kind of following my oh, following my gut um, and following the movements as well.
1: You know, there's this old saying that most writing is pre-writing. By the time you sit to the, uh, down to actually type it out, you know, mm-hmm. that's just the typing. Yeah. So it's, you know, you're writing the book all the time and all, a lot of different places mm-hmm. and experiences are writing the book. So. But I, I do want to actually get to the, the topic of the book since uh, we've both read it, but not everyone who's listening has. And you haven't only read it. I mean, you've actually written it. So that's even more impressive. The mm-hmm. the concept that uh, is figures uh, in the book very centrally is kahiki, and
0: mm-hmm. you
1: mentioned earlier sort of the the common understanding of that term, yes. which I as an anthropologist might have, which is that it's it's a term in Hawaii and other places in the Pacific for the homeland of Polynesians or Hawaiians. But in the book, you show us that that there's a whole lot more to that term kahiki than. Than, than just the historic homeland or the prehistoric homeland of of pacific islanders so can you can you unpack that concept just a little bit what are some of the deeper
0: meanings there sure um yeah kahiki oh kahiki just continues to intrigue me and sometimes i feel like whenever i have kind of a whenever i think i've got a firm understanding of what it is it, it kind of takes on these new appearances and these new meanings. And so it's always shifting. And that's part of why I'm so fascinated with it. Um, but yes, Kahiki is where um, we say our first migrating ancestors came from. Um, it's not a physical place on the map. It, it could be Tahiti, but it also isn't just Tahiti. Um, it's often um, mistaken for being Tahiti because, of course, Tahiti and Kahiki sound so similar um, but it isn't a physical place on a map. It's more the concept and the idea and the ancestral knowing that we came from somewhere else in the Pacific. Um, and I really started to explore Kahiki and became more fascinated with it as an intellectual and as an academic um, area of study when I moved here. Because when I moved here, then I started to engage with Hawaii, And Hawaii is where Tangata whenua or the indigenous Maori of Aotearoa say they came from. But Hawaii similarly, isn't Hawaii. It's not a physical place on the map. It's the, it's, the, it's the knowing that we came from somewhere else, that we migrated from somewhere else in the Pacific. And so I have to admit that coming here to Aotearoa is what inspired me to then study kahiki as a fuller concept. Um, but it's changed over time. So what once was an ancestral homeland for Hawaiians um, eventually became a term that was used to refer to any land outside of Hawaii. And so when Hawaiians started to um, interact with people who came to their shores from outside of Hawaii, kahiki became the term that they used to explain where these other people came from. So, you know, as they started to engage with other countries, America could have been kahiki, Asia could have been, you know, Europe, any, any place outside of Hawaii could be kahiki. Um, So you can see that the term being used to explain shifting circumstances, shifting experiences, new experiences. Um, So it was never one thing. It was allowed to shift over time. Something that I I look at in the book um, and that I also looked at a lot in my PhD work is how political Kahiki became in the 19th century. Um, And for this part of my research, I did dig into... um, Hawaiian language newspapers that were being published in the 1800s and the early 1900s, um, where writers were really engaging in these very robust debates and conversations about nationalism, about whether or not Hawaii should be part of America or not. Um, And you could see Kahiki being used in really interesting ways. Some people drawing on its very old, older, on its older meanings, um, drawing on, on Kahiki as a Pacific homeland, trying to pull Hawaiians back towards the Pacific to kind of distinguish themselves and separate themselves from, you know, America coming in and trying to exert their their power and their control. At the same time, you could see people saying, well, you know, old prophecies have said that Kahiki will be here in Hawaii. And so America is Kahiki. And so, you, and so it, we're just fulfilling the prophecy and maybe we should be in support of them, um, of America taking over. And so again, it, all that proved to me as I was reading through Hawaiian language newspapers and looking at the way people used kahiki is that people felt very empowered to use this concept. It wasn't something that was caught in time, um, that was unchanging. People used their agency to use these old concepts and constantly make them new over mm. time. And constantly change their meaning. Um, And so I studied, for my PhD, I studied the way kahiki was used in different points in history. And by the time I started to think about the book and how I wanted to rewrite it, I asked myself, you know, as a Hawaiian living right now, what do you need kahiki to be for you now? How can you honor the work of your ancestors who maintains memories of Kahiki in their songs and their chants and their proverbs, etc. And then the work of your your other ancestors who wrote in the Hawaiian language newspapers and 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 played with its meaning and used and stretched its meanings um, to continually explain themselves to themselves. How can you follow in their footsteps and and continue to add on to Kahiki and give it new meaning and give it new relevance for today. And so that's what I did. In the book, and I, I actually frame Kahiki as a sanctuary, as a place that we can continually visit in thought, in memory, in spirit, um, when we feel we need places of refuge or places of of safety, but also when we feel like we need to go to a place, whether it's intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, culturally, etc., to really reflect. Um, and and also do the hard work of reflecting on and thinking about our lives and our worlds and our futures. So, um, so that's been my journey with Kahiki over the last, Oh, when did I start my, my deep dive into it? Uh, maybe in 2012. So the la- you know, for, it's been a while now that i have just yeah. like, sitting with Kahiki as a concept. And again, like I said earlier, I'm just constantly fascinated by it.
1: I guess one of the things that I'm hearing from you is that, you look at this term as a term that's important
0: mm-hmm. in your
1: history and your traditions, mm-hmm. um, but it's not a term that's that's always meant the same thing. And oh. and furthering your history and traditions doesn't mean perpetuating a static body of understanding.
0: Right. It means
1: recognizing what are the things in your tradition that are sort of like addressable or mm-hmm. or um, are relevant there that are what what Webkin would call ethical affordances. They're they're just that set of stuff that you know a certain set of stuff that you're going to talk about one way or the other, and so and that's sort of what being Hawaiian is. That th- these are the topics and these are the tools, and so then for you the question was, you know, just as the people have come before me have transformed this stuff, now I'm I'm going to transform it and and give it another meaning, and that transformation is what helps sort of maybe in a way that's unfamiliar to people who are, have a strong sense of cultural patrimony as something unchanging. That transformation is is what will keep the tradition and culture enduring.
0: Exactly, yes. It's the transformation and it's the continued, it's doing the work to con, to ensure that our concepts and our, our customs and our practices are relevant. Um, if we try to keep it static, um, then then. it it might not have relevance. And then we're just kind of keeping this bound thing that only has use in the past and that we're not actually continuing to use in the present. Um, So to ensure its survival, to ensure the survival of a concept like Kahiki, I think we have to constantly use it. Um, And that's what I love about looking back at the past is that when I say my ancestors, I'm looking at ancestors over generations and in each generation and in, in each year, even each person is is using this concept in slightly different ways. And I think that's what makes it so incredible. Um, so we have the permission there and the opportunity to do the same.
1: And, you know, you are one uh, person and you're in a sort of a social field when it comes to Hawaiian culture and you have one take on Hawaiian culture, but there are other people. I think, for instance, people who would look at Mauna Kea and say, you know, um, well, these people are using all of these terms and these ideas in, in new ways and therefore they're not actively perpetuating Hawaiian culture. Mm-hmm. The, those other voices would say, you know, the definition of culture and tradition is that it doesn't change over mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And so when when you innovate like that, mm-hmm. we don't have to regard it. You know, we, mm-hmm. we don't have to uh, take it seriously because you're no longer – preserving, preservation, historic preservation becomes key mm-hmm. in, in these accounts. And mm-hmm. um and you you oppose this position not just intellectually but but also politically. And yeah. and you yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah no,
0: I, I do and I and I, I want to just acknowledge that, you know, I first started challenging those kinds of really static notions of culture um, when I engaged with the work of Albert Wint. Who is an incredible Samoan novelist, essayist, academic, painter, poet, he playwrights. He does it all. Um, And he, in 1976, wrote an essay called "Towards a New Oceania," where he challenges this notion of tradition. Um, And he says, you know, to think that our cultures have to be static and preserved in a way is to really um, assign them to to death. Cultures that are static are dead and they will die. Um, and he says in his, in his essay, the only valid culture worth having is the one being lived out right now. And that doesn't mean that we don't build on the values and the core concepts and, and beliefs and stories and, and rich um, languages of our ancestors. Of course we do what we create in the, in the now is firmly based on the past, but we have to evolve and have to change and have to continually to have to continue to make ourselves and our customs and our cultures relevant so that they survive. Um, all people do that. All people have to do that. All cultures have to evolve to survive. And so I, I, remember engaging with his work as a, you know, as a bachelor's student in maybe my second year at university um, and really being challenged by it because I had grown up to believe that yes, you have to do things in a certain way in order to maintain your culture and it's all about preservation. it's all about um, tradition. Um, and so he challenged me and I, I held on to those cons- I held on to his arguments ever since. Um, and they, they have influenced the way that I look at culture in the book. Um, and I, I've come to really realize, at least politically, that these accusations of inauthenticity or being untraditional, if you've, if you've evolved or if you've created or if you've been innovative, um, do not service Indigenous people at all. Um, they expect us to be one way. You know, anybody who accuses us of being inauth- inauthentic um, or fake Hawaiians or whatever Um, are, you know, those people are assuming us to be one way, and that is stuck in the past that they've created and that they've imagined for us. So, um, but again, you know, looking back at the Hawaiian language newspapers, looking back at these rich histories of change and innovation that we have, we see that change has always been part of our culture. It's part of all cultures. Um, And it's the heritage that I, I like to highlight and build on.
1: In my own work. Yeah, you you have this wonderful line in the book where you say they're not allowing us to grow old,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which which might s- strike some people as odd because you know it sounds like um, howler's uh, white people, mm-hmm. who come from a European background, mm-hmm. basically. To make a long story short, um, seem to be you know very very interested in old Hawaii or Hawaiian culture as old. So what does that mean when you're saying they're not letting us grow old? Isn't that what they're insisting on, that you be old? Or how is being old different from growing old?
0: Yeah, I think um, being old is, um, is stuck in the past old. It, its You have to live in the way that we've imagined you to be, uh, your people to be the way that we've romanticized you. Um, but they're not allowing us to create in the now and what we create in the now to then grow old. And I I think I should give some context for that statement. Um, So the title of the book, Everything Ancient Was Once New, um, comes from the poem that opens the book. And that poem was written the day that I was here in Aotearoa and I heard news of two ahu, or two altars, and one hale, um, a thatched house being dismantled and destroyed on the mountain. And the primary justification that came for dismantling and destroying them was that they were not traditional and they were not customary because they were built in contemporary times. Because there are other Ahu on the mountain that have not been touched because they're, you know, a couple or a few hundred years old. And so they're old and they're sacred and they're special. But anything that we create in the now to serve our contemporary agendas, oh, that's, that's not special enough. It's not old enough. So I wrote that poem. Everything ancient was once new, to just reinforce the point that things become sacred and special as they're given time to age. Um, you know, the things that that people wouldn't touch now um, have been given time to grow old, to grow in their sacredness, to grow in in their. Um, you know, they they they've been able to become special. So why are we as indigenous people today not afforded that same opportunity? Why were our Ahu that were built, you know, in, in the two thousands not allowed to also grow old and also age and also become sacred for the future? So the difference between being old is they, you know, there's this expectation that we're going to be just like our ancestors were, as if that's possible, as if our ancestors were one lump thing. And again, you get back to very static notions of culture and tradition there, Um, but also how, um, you know, they want us to be old. They want us to be like some past romanticized image of Hawaii, Um, but they don't want us to actually grow old and evolve and change as people um, in the
1: now. it's It strikes me too, that a lot of the things that we consider uh, sacred or maybe just important, not quite sacred, but still important, they're important to us because they matter to us now. Um, I can't remember, there's a psychoanalyst who says that, you know, authenticity is a relationship to the present, not the past. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the actions of people on the Mauna, um they did not take those protective actions because it was easy or inexpensive. Right. As as you yourself say, I mean, you are out quite a bit just just, just to get back to the island on, on short notice. Mm-hmm. The These ahu that were built obviously are a sign of tremendous commitment. And if people have not had a chance to watch much of the um, action around the Mauno, you could watch it on YouTube. You could watch the daily news. You know, people were... Um, chaining themselves to things. And, uh, you know, they, you could see that there was a profound existential commitment Mm -hmm. that in the present that, that people felt. And I think that it's important when you start thinking about what matters for people Mm -hmm. as, as a collective, or even just as a person, you have to look at how much they care about something in in the present and and how, how that
0: makes it important. Mm, Exactly. And I, you know, that, that kind of commitment that you're talking about comes from, and I, I talk about this um, a bit in the book as well. Um, that for me is a demonstration of what we call aloha aina. Um, and if, you've, if you're have if you familiar with the movement to protect Mauna Kea, you would have heard that phrase, or you may be familiar with it yourself. But the way I often explain aloha aina is aloha means love. Um, you know, it's also a common greeting. Um, and aina means land, but... You know, if you take that word apart, aina, um, it also means that which feeds, I meaning to eat and na is a suffix that turns it into that which feeds. So it's a, it's a deep love of place. It's a love of all of our sources of nourishment and sustenance. Um, but the way that I often explain aloha aina to others is that I, I say it is a fierce and a ferocious commitment to active protection of aina. Um, so it's what drives people to chain themselves to cattle guards. It's what motivated, you know, dozens of kupuna or elders to sit on the access road up to Mauna Kea and get arrested. Um, it's what moved people to, um, go to the Mauna, to stay at the Pu'uhonua, to camp on the ground there, to come together, to, to, um, yeah, to take a stand, um, and I, and I, wanted, I wanted to take a moment to emphasize that because I think especially in Hawaii and, and, and even out of Hawaii, you know, aloha is such a commonly used word. It's, it's one of the words that's associated with Hawaii and it's also one of the most abused words. Um, and so in the book, I, I am intentional about explaining aloha and aloha aina because for us, aloha isn't just this light and fluffy thing. It is fierce. Um, and that's where that commitment comes from. Um, And so, yeah, I just wanted to pick up on that, that sense of commitment that you're talking about and and talk about it as being this really, um, yeah, this really old generational, intergenerational commitment to place that comes, comes from Aloha.
2: slash /nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah.
1: yeah, I think Aloha Aina is another one of these um concepts or sort of um cultural tropes that that are very very deep and have transformed over time and mean different things. And so you have in your in your book a chapter on this concept and mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about how it's it, it's maybe connected to or similar to but very different from a kind of uh, primitive or primordial connection to land or a kind of a kind of, um, a kind of uh, natural or primitive um, environmentalism, which is the way that some people view that. And you you sort of puzzle out what it means to be indigenous and be connected to land. but yeah. but but in a way that's more complicated than just, um, you know, uh, uh, we're we're sort of um, pre-capitalist. Uh, and in touch with the land, almost. Sometimes you hear these tropes of animality of Pacific Islanders. The connection to the land is almost inhuman and mm. and instinctual.
0: Yeah, yeah. I do. I do take a bit of time to talk about that in the book because I think it, it's it's really important that Indigenous peoples are often kind of reduced to these close to nature. Um, you know, indigenous peoples are at one with nature, close to nature, and it's, it has become a trope. The clo- You know, we have this closeness to nature trope. And um, in the book, I, I, the same, like, while I want to accept the fact that, yes, many of us are close to the environment, because as I said earlier, in the case of Mauna Kea, or using Mauna Kea as an example, I view Mauna Kea as my ancestor. And that's not just in myth, and that's not just in, make you know, in, in light story that's an everyday lived reality my relationship with mauna kea both fills me and breaks my heart um so there is this closeness to quote unquote nature this closeness to aina um but we shouldn't be reduced to that and in the book i do talk about how that close that particular trope closeness to nature has actually been used against many indigenous people um it has been used to to um you know, push claims again, getting back to inauthenticity of, of um, claims of being untraditional. If, if you don't grow up close to nature, if you grow up in urban settings, for example, then you might be accused of being less indigenous or not real or, or again, um, less authentic. And so I, I do take some time to unpack that trope, but at the same time, do say that Aloha Aina is a lived practice and a lived identity for a lot of us. Um, and I say that because aloha aina is both the verb, it's the action of, of engaging in protection of aina, but it's it's also what you become when you do it. So it's a noun as well. So I do aloha aina, I engage in it, but I'm also an aloha aina. And I also want to mention that aloha aina has very deep political roots as well. And in the 19th century, if you were an aloha aina, you were actively against um, american imperialism and annexation and so it has those political roots as well but yeah i i that is something that there's a lot there's a lot of kind of sticky bits in the book where i found that i i have to, i had to kind of grapple with what it means to be indigenous and and what are these kind of um sticky spaces that we end up in when when we are viewed and kind of characterized from the outside and closeness to nature um, was one of those that i had to end up grappling with a bit
1: well, I think the nice thing is that when you introduce the Hawaiian terms and you start to explain what they mean in more depth, then you can kind of move past the concept of nature, which is a very, yeah. very, very, very complicated term with a long history and its opposition to culture. And that, you know, it almost never helps being close to nature in the long run for anyone. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> Um so uh you know you talked about um grappling with some of these sticky bits and you mentioned this earlier in the interview can you can you talk a little bit about how um being indigenous was complicated for you as an identity when you found yourself as an indigenous person on on other indigenous peoples' aina
0: Right you know it sounds it's 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 amazing how I I mean, it sounds so common sense, like, of course, you're going to have to think about who you are when you're not living on your land anymore. But having been born and raised in Hawaii and being Hawaiian in Hawaii, that's the reality I lived in. I knew myself as an indigenous person. I experienced myself that way and I was on my indigenous land. And so moving here. um, Yeah, just really, I had to start to think about what it means to be Indigenous, but to live on land that you're not Indigenous to, and what kind of responsibilities and obligations come with that. Um, And there is one chapter in the book where I talk about that. Specifically, I talk about living here in Aotearoa. Um, I talk about how it became very important for me to acknowledge our genealogical connections across the Pacific as peoples who are related to one another, but not lean upon that too heavily to make myself feel too comfortable in this country. Um, I, in one chapter go through, I kind of narrate my journey in trying to figure out even just what to call myself, you know? And I remember Mm -hmm. when I first moved back here, I was insistent on calling myself a settler and I made a lot of people uncomfortable, Um, a lot of indigenous people uncomfortable. You know, I have one Maori friend who was just like, no, don't, don't call yourself that because we don't see you that way and we're related. And, um, but I didn't want to, you know, become part of the problem and kind of stake any kind of claim to this place or any kind of, um, belonging. And so that, that one chapter in the book, I, I talk about that and I narrate this kind of journey of trying to figure myself out in this country. And, and I, I hope that at the end of that chapter, if I've demonstrated anything, It's that we have to do that work no matter where we are. You know, um, if I, uh, yes, I am an Indigenous woman, but that doesn't give me any permission to be kind of lazy now that I'm living on somebody else's land. I can't rely upon my Indigenous identity to get me through. In fact, I think it's what makes me more accountable. It's It's what pushes me to do more of the work, to figure out how to stand in solidarity with the Indigenous people here, how to support them, but also not get in the way. Um so yeah I I people often ask you know what what are the biggest things you've learned in in moving to Aotearoa and now living here and and honestly it's been that it's it's been those kinds of things like really thinking about indigeneity what it means what it means when you're living on someone else's land um yeah those those questions have been so challenging for me, but have been the questions that I think I've grown from the most. And that I continue to grow from as I continue to navigate my place here, um, as my relationship with this place deepens.
1: Yeah, I mean, as you point out so eloquently there, you know, life can be very, very complicated. Mm -hmm. And there are always simple answers to the question, Mm -hmm. how should I live? And what is my responsibility to this place? On the one hand, You could say, oh, well, I'm indigenous. They're indigenous. It'll be a love fest. It's very straightforward. Uh On the other hand, you could take the position that uh, I think you are maybe arguing against in this chapter. You can let me know, you know, which I would associate with like the work of Patrick Wolfe or others who, you know, would say, if you're not indigenous, then you're a settler and you're part of the problem. You're part of a logic of elimination. Mm -hmm. And, the strength of that work is that it really challenges you, but it's also a very binary vision. It's it's just as binary as the we have no problems because we're both indigenous. Yes. And I kind of felt like in that chapter you were trying to locate yourself uh, somewhere in between those two. Yeah. Um, yeah,
0: yeah, and so I, I, you know, um, I started to draw on the the work of others, um, who kind of came up with a third <laughs> position in between. Um, so there's. In the book, I talk about you know settler, indigenous, and arrivant. That's one one term that's been used, and um, yeah, and and I did that because of the way that I was, re- the way that people responded to to me when I used the term settler to refer to myself, um, and I realized that settler didn't um, account for the many complex ways that people arrived to place. Um, that there are people who didn't come here with the with the um, goal to erase and displace. Yes, their being here is part of the structural fact of settler colonialism, but they didn't come here under the same conditions. And so I felt like kind of challenging that supposed binary helped to pro- to provide a place for others who don't quite fit that. You know, they're not in- the indigenous people to this place, but they also didn't come. Um, or or don't come from a legacy of that kind of intent to erase and eliminate. Um, They may have come here as migrant workers. They may have come um, under, you know, the promise of opportunities and then suffered at the hands of racist governmental programs and structures, et cetera. Um, And so I think the chapter kind of provides this space for exploring the the in-between positions. Um, knowing that those are very diverse and, and that there are many, many of them. And I, I say in the book that I, I don't actually have the opportunity to really map out all of those diverse in between identities, but I do think it's important to acknowledge that there are more than just um, those two settler indigenous identities.
1: Hmm. You know, if let me let me ask you a question that will that will drive you nuts. I am hearing. If I, I hope you don't mind, um, I I hear I'm hearing in my head. I can imagine like a conservative intellectual, maybe on the mainland, you know, who wants to teach more Shakespeare in class and doesn't understand why they have to teach more Toni Morrison or something like that. Mm-hmm. They would they would look at Native and Indigenous studies, NISA, um, and they would say, you know, the I the the sort of the Patrick Wolfe view. That it's not about your intentions. It's just about your presence. And the incredible the incredible binary nature of that is mm-hmm. and that focus on land, m- moving land mm-hmm. into the center of the analytic focus mm-hmm. is very powerful. but and that's one of the reasons that it's been so generative. Mm-hmm. but it's it's also um, very simplifying. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine someone like that saying like things like, you know, it turns out that all settlers are evil until one of you guys is a settler. And then suddenly it turns out to be more complicated, you know, so I can imagine there'd be some people on the outside who would be, who'd be pretty cynical about this growing, um, complication of these narratives of settler colonialism. How would you, how would you, as you can imagine, I'm not particularly sympathetic to that voice, but how would you reply to that voice?
0: Um, so just to make sure I understand your question, it's, it's how would I reply to someone being sort of skeptical of, of moving beyond the binary and kind of complicating it?
1: Yeah. Did, weren't we already beyond the binary before NISA simplified it in a way that, that seems untenable to a lot of people? And then slow, only slowly through your own experience, are you now rediscovering a kind of complexity which, which many settlers, for instance, might have ar- already known about all along?
0: Hmm. hmm. That's an interesting question. Because um, I- I'll, I'll tell I'll tell
1: you I'll vamp. You know <laughs> I'll tell you sometimes. Um, you know I'm I'm party to these conversations, and there the these kinds of arguments are made with a a lot of force by some people. Let me put it that mm-hmm. way. I'm I'm mm-hmm. always a little unsure how to how to respond.
0: Yeah. So basically they're saying, okay, so we've already known that they were quite complex and then we moved to this binary and now we're moving back to complexity. And it's, so that's kind of the, is that sort of the criticism?
1: Yeah. And, and, um, you know, how much of the theoretical clarity that we gain by that reduction, um, is going to stand at the end of that process? Mm -hmm. I guess that would be. And then I think there's another particularly mean-hearted version of it, um, which is that, you know, it takes the personal experience of being a settler for for uh, indigenous scholars such as yourself to realize things that that we settler, although they would never call themselves settlers, that we settlers have been struggling with all all along. Mm. You know, mm. so I, I think there's a there's something like that going on. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I mean, I just feel like we we maybe going back to something I said earlier about evolving and shifting concepts. I mean, why do we ever have to just stick with one thing? I mean, maybe we explored the binary, the possibility of this the, this binary for a while. And if we've moved back to being more complex and exploring other identities now, then what, what's wrong with that? Um, I think and- Indigenous people keep moving as well. Um, like I myself have moved and there are many of us who are now living in lands that are not we are not indigenous too, that. We need to have that space to explore um, our multiple identities and our complex identities, and this is just one way of giving voice to that. And the and the
1: course of that exploration probably has been, you know, we've learned things and we've been enriched by that exploration mm-hmm. as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Maybe this feeds back into your discussion of um, kahiki, mm-hmm. uh, which you mentioned earlier. You know. Kahiki was originally, um, an origin point or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe not a geographical one, but a, a origin point. But then for you, Kahiki is also, um, in terms of how you've been enriched, sort of a state of mind or a, yeah. a way of being, it's no longer mm-hmm. a physical location on the map. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a valuable sort of mode of experience that to me seemed really new and interesting. Can you continue tell me what that, what, what, what is going on with that?
0: Yeah, it's um, it, it has become this this state of mind, at least for me. It, it's it's a place I consciously and actively return to often, um, in thought, in memory. It's where I sit to kind of really think um, critically about relationality, about relationships across the Pacific, um, about obligations and responsibilities to one another, about regionalism. Um, so no th- you know those those ideas may not have been part of what kahiki was was initially but they are part of it now um at least for me and i see so much potential in using the term and the concept for the for thinking through those things um but yeah when when i tell people that i i go to kahiki often it's it's because that's sort of become my my very um my reflect it's become my reflective space, but it's also become my sanctuary. As I write about in the book, it's, it's kind of this place that I know will never be taken from me. It's always mine. It's been ours, you know, since we arrived in Hawaii and before that, you know, um, it's been ours and it will continue to be ours and we can continue to visit it. And I think there's so much power in having these intellectual and kind of ideological spaces, um, that, that, transcend the physical that we can always go to that we can always think through that we can always sit in um, and and invite other people to come in come in with us um, hmm. so yeah and, you so know, i think i may have rambled off of your <laughs> your initial no question, no but- that that i mean
1: that's it i mean that's what i find so fascinating about this idea on the one hand kahiki becomes a, a sanctuary where you can rest yes. or contemplate but then for you it's also simultaneously a, a place of struggle or uh, yeah. uncomfortable tension and i thought that the mixing those two modes was really interesting cuz most people think of a sanctuary where you go to not be challenged but you think of it as a place where you go to be challenged which i just thought was yeah. really really interesting
0: yeah because i think about so the so and the inspiration for really using the term sanctuary came from going home to the mountain and going home to um the Pu'uhonua, Pu'uhonua is the Hawaiian word for sanctuary, but going home to the Pu'uhonua that had been established at the base of the mountain. Um, and Pu'uhonua were places of refuge, you know, in in um, prior to European contacts, you know, if people broke a tapu or a, or a law and they made it to a, a Pu'uhonua, they could be safe, you know, from from punishment. But it wasn't that they just got the, to the Pu'uhonua and then had a relaxing vacation. You had to kind of do the work you know, to before reintegrating back into society. And so I do view sanctuaries not just as these places of rest and, you know, recuperation and and rejuvenation, but also the place where you do the hard work because you're not supposed to live in the sanctuary, right? They're not supposed to be permanent places of residence. I mean, especially thinking about Kahiki as a non-physical space, I'm not supposed to be there all the time, but it is the place I need to go when when I might need some comfort and when I might need some rest, but also when I need to be challenging myself, when I need to be critical of myself, um, when I need to do some hard thinking and some hard work. Um, and that for me, yeah, just really adds layers to to the word sanctuary and to what we think sanctuaries can and, and perhaps should be for us.
1: Right. It's not part of a church. It's oh. puu Honua, which yeah. is a place where you think about what you're going to do when you leave it.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And how you're going to be better <laughs> when you leave it.
1: Yeah. Ah, it's fascinating. It's absolutely mm-hmm. fascinating.
0: Um, well, if I
1: could just, I, I just feel like there's one more thing before I let you go here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the um, penultimate chapter, you talk about um, unsettling the settler and Captain Cook. And um it's been a while since I read the book and we've had to a chance to arrange an interview because of covid but mm-hmm. if i remember correctly you talk about the dis- the the um dismembering of cook's body as a model of the kind of scholarship that you want to do i <laughs> thought that that was i thought that was absolutely fascinating and probably uh you know we should definitely get that out on the table especially because you know on the one hand people i i, I thought maybe i shouldn't ask about this because if I did, then we'd have to talk about Captain Cook. And yeah. there's been quite a lot written on him. Yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, Cook uh, mm. and reactions to Cook have been uh, really um, uh, connective and generative of relationships between Maori and Hawaiian people. I think Lily Kala somewhere says, um, you know, you know, you guys met him, but we're the ones who got him. Yeah, so, could you tell me a little bit what is that unsettling the settler and that that model of um, dismembering go you know go there tell tell me a little bit about that
0: I will um so actually I, I should say that chapter was really inspired by or that chapter came out of um a commemorative event that took place here in um in Aotearoa in 2019 and that was um called Tuya 250, and or the short name for it. I think it was Tuya Encounters 250, but Tuia 250 was the short name for it. And it was the New Zealand government's way of commemorating um, Captain James Cook, uh, Captain Cook's um, invasion of New Zealand 250 years prior in 1769. Um, and so I found myself in a lot of conversations about Cook um, and invited to speak on a few panels and do a few talks about Captain Cook um, and I just have to give a bit of a shout out to, to Tina Ngata, who's just such a fierce and amazing, um, intellectual and activist here in, in Aotearoa who invited me to do some talks with her and, um, and a lot of other people who I did a lot of work with in 2019. But so in doing those talks about Captain Cook, I started to really dig into, um, the end of his life, if we're being honest in Hawaii. Um, and not just the fact that he was killed in Hawaii, but, but. The, the details around it. You know, how was his body treated? His his body was taken apart and his and his flesh was stripped down and his he was stripped down to the bones and there was a lot of intention. And of course I wasn't there, so I don't know all the details, but just what I've been able to read is that there was um yeah, there there was there was reason behind the, why his body was was treated in a particular way and why his his flesh was stripped down to the bones. And so that particular chapter looks at Captain Cook and looks at the dismembering of his body and the stripping of flesh. And, and I talk about how I think that is, a, you know, a pretty good metaphor for what we need to do with settler colonialism itself. It's strip it down to the bones, um, like continuously try to reveal colonial fictions, continuously make settler colonialism visible, um, visible to the point that we, we question everything every street name that is named, every street that's named for a colonizer, every building that, that, you know, raises a colonial flag, etc. cetera. Um, so it's kind of questioning the so-called normalcy and you can't do that unless you see the structure. And um, so when you, when you, and I know it sounds gruesome to some people, but when you strip it down, when you strip cook down to the bones, you see the, the root of it, you see the structure of it. Um, and so that's what I I, I propose in that chapter, and, and that's the chapter where I grapple with what it meant to be Hawaiian here in New Zealand, and kind of navigating this space where people were protesting and we were protesting to Eo two fifty, um, and it's what essentially was a celebration of colonialism in in Aotearoa, um, and I just kind of said, hey, you know, this is what we did, this is what our people did to Ho- to Captain Cook in in Hawaii, and. How can we actually learn from the intentionality of their actions and, and use that? Not, of course, to strip people down physically, but to strip the structure down. If we, if we use Cook as being kind of a symbol of colonialism, what is it that we need to do um, so that we can be in control of the narrative um, and, and also start to dismantle some of those colonial fictions that have been so much a part of our lives for so long? Well, you know, I think it's it's
1: very brave of you. It's one thing to say, you know, nature, we're not really doing nature. we're doing ina, you know, culture, we're not doing primordialism, we're doing dynamism. Mm. but you know the 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 concept of cannibalism is tied to some of the deepest, darkest stereotypes of Pacific Islanders mm. and, and to refashion that mm. and uh, in some sense, I guess redeem the practice not the word necessarily but but yeah, redeem well, I, the practice you you're kind of i mean that's a big step to take
0: i mean it it is a big step to talk about the the taking a part of his body i i never use the term cannibalism though i don't think i ever use it because, yeah, I, no, because I don't right. think we actually ate him um i know there's a lot of talk about whether we did or didn't um and and i'm not denying cannibalism as a practice in the pacific but um but that's something i didn't yeah i, I didn't say we have to kind of uh, consume anything to dismantle settler colonialism, but I do talk about just the act of stripping his body down and and being de- very deliberate in how his bones were redistributed afterwards.
1: Um, yeah, that's right. If a reader should not expect to find a long celebratory discussion of the c word no. in your in your book,
0: but. <laughs> no. But and, and but I do think you're right in that like uh, the book is challenging a lot of things. And it was a bit of a I I I had to reflect for a while about whether or not that chapter was going to make it into the book, um, or whether or not it was going to be a journal article and, and kind of thinking about the way the book was progressing as I was rewriting it, because I had written that as um, an article for NISA, actually, for the conference that was here in in um mm-hmm. in twenty nineteen and I thought I'd publish it as an article and then as, as I as I was rewriting the book, I thought I thought, you know what? This is a pretty hard hitting piece. And I do think it has a space in the book. Um and, and that's the one chapter where again I grapple with indigeneity and, and what that means in a different place and try to think critically about um, obligations to to other indigenous peoples when you're on your land, and so I use that that Cook narrative um, to kind of talk about that and what the work is that we have to do, whether we're at home or or somewhere else. Well, and I think changing the metaphor from one of
1: consumption to one of dismemberment or revelation mm-hmm. is 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 really useful, and it it offers a reorientation and mm. a, a metaphorical and a poetic space to imagine new forms of scholarly activity, mm. you know, and I I think maybe there's, there's value in that. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I've kept you for a long time and I appreciate you um, spending some time today before I let you go. Can you tell me uh, what your next project is going to be?
0: You know, I've, I've gotten this question a lot lately and um I, I, of course, would love to write another book in the future. I, I don't necessarily have an idea about that, about what I want to do right now. But I will say um, that I think Kahiki, I think I could probably explore Kahiki for the rest of my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I, I would love to develop it further um, and to, to think about it further. Um, one of the things about the book is that because the bulk of it was written in 2019, you know, whatever didn't come from the PhD work before that, um, it was pre-COVID, and I would love to kind of re-engage with some of these concepts, um, you know, with kahiki, and also re-engage with issues of indigeneity now that we've experienced what we've experienced in the last, you know, year and a half in 2019. I was able to physically move. I moved. I went home to Mauna Kea. I came back here. I, you know, engaged in other movements here. And there's something to be said about our physical groundedness and the inability to move, and how that challenges indigeneity in other in other ways. Um, so I don't really have a specific project, but I do know that I, I want to continue to explore these ideas, um, to continue to think about indigeneity, to also further develop kahiki. Um, something that I didn't quite talk about in the book uh, was the long history of militarism in Hawaii, and I've done. Um, a bit of work on that, um, you know, after the book was written, and so just kind of thinking about directions for future work, more intentional. Um, I probably engage much more intentionally with militarism. I mean, of course, it's in the book, but it's not a huge topic. Um, and then continue to just kind of explore these other, these other issues. But we'll see. We'll see where, what what the future um, holds and and what ideas kind of come and need to be written. Well, you know, it sounds like those would all
1: make great projects. Uh, And so I look forward to reading them and and hearing you speak on them in the future. Thank you. Um, So Emelani Case was our guest today. She's the author of Everything Ancient Once Was New, Indigenous Persistence from Hawaii to Kahiki. Thanks again for being on the podcast today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: This has been an episode of the New Books Network. Please go ahead and subscribe. Look us up on the web. Find us on Twitter, social media. Uh, to find more new books content. And until next time, take care.
2: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com.
1: It's my little escape.
2: Now Judy's the life of the party.
1: Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon.
2: Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs>